0: Please stand for the reading of the word from Acts 17. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we too are his offspring. The word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Good morning, Highland. Good morning. It is good to see you here today. I hope that you were able to be with us last week and grab one of these bookmarks as you headed home. If you weren't able to get one, there are more in the stands as you leave today. The reason why is because on the back, there is a little spiritual discipline, an exercise that is tied uh, to what we're doing together during this sermon series, and I want you to be a part of that. Last week, we talked about that experience of Moses. Moses is tending sheep, his father-in-law's sheep, far from the place he was born in Egypt, far from Pharaoh's palace, what he notices something out of the corner of his eye, something strange. And so Moses turns aside to see this bush that doesn't seem to burn up. And I hope you engaged in that exercise this week. Maybe you walked in a neighborhood that you didn't normally walk in and you just kind of looked at the architecture of the houses around you. Or maybe you drove a different way home uh, sometime this week on your, on your commute and you saw maybe some weird art that was in somebody's front yard. We want to practice the discipline of paying attention to what happens on the periphery of our vision. Because sometimes it's when you're, when you're not focused that God speaks. And we need to have that instinct, that reflex of turn aside. I want us to begin today thinking about the story of Thomas. He's one of the apostles. He's chosen by Jesus to do uh, to be a disciple. But the way that we know him, the way that he's famous, is that he is doubting Thomas. And he's not the only person that doubts in Scripture. I mean, Zechariah doubts God. Sarah and Moses doubt God. Both are promises of children. And as Sarah laughs. Th- There's a lot of folk that doubt in Scripture. And you kind of have to wonder. Now, if you don't know the story, it goes something like this. Uh, Jesus has gathered his disciples, and they witness all sorts of things. They are they're his they're followers. He is their rabbi, and he is learning from their teachings. He learns from the way that he interacts with With Samaritans, with the rulers and the teachers, with the Pharisees, he observes that. They witness his miracles and the power. He, He heals the sick. He helps the lame walk. Does all sorts of amazing things. Feeds a multitude of people. But then he turns his face toward Jerusalem. And the civic and religious powers conspire together to kill him. And Jesus hangs on a cross and is buried in a tomb. But we know the end of that story. Three days later, Jesus is raised by the power of God from the dead. And the first evangelists, the first witnesses, uh, see this and they go and they run and they tell the disciples, He's risen, and they run back, some of them, and, they, and then Jesus appears in a, in a locked room. We're in John chapter 20 now. Appears in a locked room, and everybody's there except for Thomas, and they see him. And so they all go to Thomas, and they say, you wouldn't believe what we just saw you. you wouldn't understand. Jesus is back, and Thomas says, look. And I'm paraphrasing here. That's great, guys, but if, if I can't stick my hand my finger in the hole in his hand, if I can't stick my hand in his side, I'm not sure I believe what you say is true. Doubting Thomas. What kind of doubt is that exactly? Is that skepticism? Is what Thomas is looking for some sort of like empirical evidence to create certainty? Is that what he needs? He needs to test the truth of the hypothesis that Jesus is risen. Is that what this is? Is that the kind of doubt? Is it, is it incredulity? I mean, miracles are one thing. It's great when you feed 5,000 people. But resurrection is another thing entirely. You mean to tell me that Jesus was raised from the dead? Or is it disbelief? That fits more in the line with Zachariah and Sarah. It's not so much that they believe or don't believe in the power of the existence of God. They just don't believe God can or would do what God said God would. I mean, clearly, Jesus wasn't the son of God or he wouldn't have been murdered. What kind of doubt is happening here? What's Thomas experimenting, experiencing? Because there's, I think there's, There's two forms of doubt. There's existential doubt. Does God exist? Is this story true? Is this something we can test? And then there's the doubt of character. Will God do what God says God will do? And it's really tempting for us to put kind of modern concepts and push them into the story of Thomas and and, and make it fit our worldview, but I just don't think Scripture is trying to answer those questions. Have you ever wondered? uh, One of my elders back in San Jose He loved to ask this question. And if if he was in a place where there were a small group of people, he would ask this question and just see the response. Have you ever wondered, he would begin, why God doesn't just put blinking letters on the moon, I am here. Why doesn't God do that? And inevitably what would happen is people would just kind of talk about it, offer solutions, work it out and the the elder would always come back to these two points maybe maybe he already has or maybe it wouldn't matter if god did what thomas does do whether he deserves it or not is serve as a scapegoat for the rest of us and for the disciples He's the one that doubts. He's the one that has issues. It's not us. They all didn't believe at first until they saw Jesus face to face. Was this a lack of Thomas' moral fortitude or something else? Because there's a part of us that always wants to blame doubters so that we can protect the tender parts of us that are from vulnerability or from pain or even from admitting at times that we doubt too. But I love how in the story, if you read John chapter 20, you find out that Thomas finds a just redemption. The risen Lord appears, deals directly with Thomas, angst, kindly, and he proclaims, Thomas proclaims, my Lord and my God. We live in a world that is disenchanted. And part of what that means is that doubt is pretty common for us. The way that sociologists uh, Charles Taylor have come up with a way to name this is very creative. You're going to love how thoughtful they said this is. There is secular one, secular two, and you guessed it, secular three. Secular one is an experience of where um, the secular experience, remember where God has no place, religion has no place in that environment, exists in the public sphere. Now this is basically what America was designed to be. The separation of church and state, and partially this was because, at least in Europe, that every state or nearly every state had kind of a sponsored church. There was a, a, a state, a church state, uh, for lack of a better term. And, and in America, when everyone arrived, they brought those old world ideas with them, and so there was no way in this competing place of this market that they could say, "Okay, well, this is the church that's going to be part of the American state." And so they just punted and said, "Look, we're not going to have any." We're going to have a separation of church and state. There's, in the public sphere, it's secular. Secular, too, is defined as kind of a declining belief in practice. People tend not to go to church as much anymore, and they tend not to care as much as they used to. You can remember back in the 1940s or 50s, there was kind of the statements that would go along. that would say, you can choose any church or synagogue of your choice. But the assumption was you were choosing a church or synagogue. Fast forward about 70, 80 years, and you realize more than half of Americans choose not to go anywhere. In fact, choose not to believe entirely. And then secular three. Now, these are all kind of porous borders, right? You can exist in one and the other, and sometimes at your workplace, you're in a secular two, but, but at your house, you're in secular one. You know, it's, it's all kind of fudge, fuzzy, Secular three is a place where conditions are perfect for unbelief in religion becomes a viable option. Right? Like, again, back to the 1930s and 40s, if you said you didn't believe in God, you were an atheist, that would feel very strange. In fact, you might suffer socially for that. But at least even in West Texas now, If you choose not to believe in any God or any sense of spirituality, it doesn't affect you at all. We live in a secular three world. And as a consequence, most of us experience in our life journey, in our faith journey, moments of moderate to severe doubt. Doubt. We encounter things and, and we don't have the answer right up front. Maybe those things are like suffering, something terrible happens and you don't know how to wrestle with why God would allow that thing to happen or or where was God in that moment or you get on the internet and you watch, um, you know, kind of those evangelical atheists like uh, Christopher Hitchens or uh, they're like and they make an argument that seems logical and sound and you don't know how to counter it. You're going to experience moments or you just kind of have one of those days where you're like. Is all of this for real? The, the border between the spiritual and the secular is porous. And so we naturally experience doubt. And so part of what we want to do is just normalize that. That happens. That happens to all of us. It's just kind of the way it is in the conditions that we're living in. But there's also good news in this. Because in the same way that you as a believer experience doubt, it means those who are atheists or unbelievers have moments when they experience transcendence. Something that they can't explain. Something beyond their understanding. And I think this is kind of what Paul is getting to in, in Acts chapter 17. The, the story begins with Paul doing his missionary work, his missionary journey, and he goes to Athens, which is a very uh, Greek city. It has lots of temples to a lot of different gods. It was kind of one of those cosmopolitan cities where if you wanted to worship Athena, you could worship Athena. If you wanted to worship Dionysus, you could worship Dionysus. At this point, I'm not certain if Dionysus is a dinosaur or a god. We're just going to move on. Um, but if you wanted any god you wanted to worship, you could find a place to do that. But the Athenians knew, and I think this is very brilliant, they knew that there was going to be some traveler that came from some place that was looking to worship their god, and they're not going to be able to find it in this marketplace of, of, of polytheism, and so they came up with this brilliant idea. They made an altar to the unknown god, and it's a trap. It's a trap. It's a tourist trap because someone would come up and say, hey, I'm looking for this God that you've never heard of. And they could say, oh, sir, it's wonderful. We have it right this way, right here, the temple of the unknown God. This is right for you. That'll be 595. Thank you very much. It's brilliant. And so Paul comes along to this city and he walks through and he sees this altar and he says to himself, here's the moment. Here's the chance. He goes to the Areopagus and he says, do you want to know who the unknown God is? It's the one that created the heavens and the earth. It's the one that spent the cosmos into motion. It's the one that not only created everything that you can see and all of the things that you can't see, it even created you. And this God is experienced in the life of Jesus Christ. And then he even, he quotes Greek poets to connect them to it. It's a brilliant move that Paul does to connect these Greeks to the story of Jesus. Paul wouldn't use this language, but in some ways he uses that border story to re-enchant them into the power of God. Chuck Polniak is a, is a writer. He's most famous for writing a book called Fight Club, um, which came into a movie like 20 years ago. Uh, but most of his stories, if you read them, they're just really bizarre. They're interesting short stories. They're kind of, they're very strange. He's a very creative author. And he, he talks about when he started to do, you know, kind of book tours and interviews and stuff. The, the question that he always got over and over and over was, how do you come up with these stories? And, like, that was really interesting for him to answer, like, the first five times he was asked it. But by the 500th time, he just got sick of the question. In fact, when people ask it, he's just like, look, I'm not going to answer that anymore. I'm, I'm tired of that question. I'm not going to answer it. So he wrote a book on writing recently, and he, he explained that answer once and for all so he can just say, go read the book. That'll be the answer for you. What he does to come up with his ideas, he calls it crowd seeding. You may have heard of, like, cloud seeding. And he, he creates this environment and then he asks a question. Now you have to be really careful about creating the right environment. The people around you have to feel safe or they have to feel bold. But then he gets a group of people and he, he tells a story about his own experience. And not only does it have to be the right place, it has to be the right story. Because it can't be a story that's over the top, so much so that no one can respond, or it's unbelievable. It can't be a story that's boring, that nobody wants to listen to it. But he tells the story that's just right in the middle. And it happens every time when he tells it right, that somebody else says, yeah, something like that happened to me once. And then they tell their story. And then somebody else starts talking. It's called crowd seating. And as I'm reading this, I realize that's that's one of those doors to reenchantment. It's a it's a border story. It's 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 that thin porous space between secular and spiritual. We tell a border story and we see what happens. Because most everybody living in this world has got that moment that they can't explain. The most hardened atheists would tell you maybe about a moment where their mother was in the hospital, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. They didn't know how to pray. They didn't know what they were praying to. They just felt this deep longing inside them that they made verbal, I really want my mom to feel better. And she got better, and they didn't know what to do with that. Or they experienced a moment of transcendence. They were at a concert and they were listening to the music and something happened in that moment that was beyond the listening that moved them in such a way, the way that they'd never felt before and they can't explain what happened, but they began to weep. It was a moment of transcendence. It was a border story. I, was, uh, I worked at Cullen Auditorium through most of my undergraduate career to pay the rent at ACU. And uh, I worked as a stagehand. And one of the jobs that we had to do at the stagehand was to balance this thing called the fly wheel reel, which is a—it's uh, how the curtains go up and down, how the set pieces move. And every now and then, when you're uh, moving that stuff around, the weights get off, and so you have to reset them. And there's, there's a lower platform in the fly, flywheel, and there's a, there's a high platform. And sometimes what you have to do is you have to take these weights, they're about 40 pounds each, and carry them from the bottom to the top. It's like a it's like a 30-foot ladder that you've got to carry it up. And so what you do is you put a couple of those in a backpack, and then you climb up this ladder. Now, there's a safety s- system in this ladder. It's this kind of cage that goes around it, so that if you get tired or you slip, all you have to do is lock your legs and push out. You're going to hit the cage. You're going to be fine. And one of the rules about doing this is that you're never supposed to do it when you're in the auditorium alone, but I was in the auditorium alone, and I had to balance it, so get my work done. And so I would put two of those weights in my bag, and I was climbing up. I had to do it about five times. On the third time, as I was going up, I lost my grip on my feet. And my arms went straight. I was hanging on, and I could not find the other rung. I was just hanging on. Now, I'm not a strong person. I do not have what you call upper body strength. I'm hanging on for dear life. It's about 15 feet between me and the landing. And I cannot explain what happened. But in a moment, it was like something grabbed the backpack and lifted it up. Just enough that I could pull my body up to put my feet on the next rung. And then I climbed down that ladder, took off the backpack, and I just about cried for five minutes. And this is what I don't know. I don't understand what happened in that moment. I don't know if that was my endocrine system doing something adrenally that my, I'd never experienced before. I don't know if that was a part of my brain turning on because my cerebellum was just going nuts in fear. I have no idea how that happened. But what I do know is you have a story that's just about the same. And maybe our job is to tell those border stories. And maybe God works through that power to re-enchant the world. So this is what I want you to do this week, and I'm absolutely serious. We need to practice the disciplines that bring us to a place where we can experience the reenchantment enchantment of God. There's no other way. I want you to practice telling a border story. Something that happened to you not over the top, not so boring that nobody cares. Practice telling it, and then find the right place. Find the end of a party when everybody's gone chilled out. Find a campfire when the embers have burned low. Find that cup of coffee that you can share with someone that you care about, and tell the story, and then see what happens. Let's see what happens when we trust God To spread the gospel, to seed the gospel to the people around us. May you be bold and courageous and do not be afraid. Carry your doubt with you because in one hand is doubt, but the other hand is transcendence. Be full of the spirit and go in peace.